Welcome to We Are Homeless, the podcast that explores the hidden world of housing alternatives and solutions in the Bay Area. My name is Adam Garrett Clark, and here in the Bay Area, we are homeless. The moonlight sleeping on the I found myself uh, continuously running into uh, this woman at various events and uh, conventions. Uh, Her name is Rebecca Gorman. She is a real estate agent. She's also an advocate for intentional communities and uh, a volunteer uh, who cares deeply about uh, our housing crisis uh, and homelessness. Um, so we had a very long and interesting conversation, which I'm happy to share with you today. Uh, we get really deep into the weeds uh, in on how to start an intentional community. There's a ton of great resources that Rebecca points to that uh, will be in the notes. So uh, get out your pen and pencils. And uh, we also talk about the word, the term homelessness. Uh, what is What does it mean? We deconstruct it. Uh, it's a long but... Uh, very interesting conversation. Uh, so here we go. Somebody sing. Somebody sing. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Rebecca Gorman. Hello, Adam. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's start with um, one w- out of out of your journey in studying cooperatives. What's what's one that kind of sticks out in your mind? Um, doesn't have to be your favorite, but one that's that's doing something that kind of sticks with you, that, that's working in some way? Uh, well, the cooperatives I've been most closely involved with have been Rainbow Mansion down in Cupertino, where I used to live, and the Embassy Network up here in San Francisco, um, which also has affiliates all around the world. Um, and they have a focus on sharing resources as well as um, sparking dialogue I- and ideas and uh, exposing people to opportunities um, and a focus on changing the world and making the, better p- the world a better place. Right, and the Embassy Network, that's like a, a, a network of, or it's, like, it's almost like a, co- a community of communities, right? Yes, exactly. It's, right. A, it's a community of affiliated Co-work, or I'm sorry, co co-housing spaces, or uh, as as some of them would say, communes. Right, and that's an international network, right? That's there's that's there's communities network. all over the world. Yeah, and they're also a member of the Height Street Commons, which is a group of uh, various um, intentional communities here in San Francisco. Right, and that's and the Height Street Commons is is like a network of Bay Area based communities. Would that be accurate to say? The Heights Street Commons? Yeah. That's of uh, mostly currently um, intentional communities or co-housing in the um, Haight Street area. Oh, so that's specific to San Francisco. It's specific to the Haight Street area. Okay. All right. Okay, that makes sense. So you have... So you have communities, right, of physical places where people actually live uh, and, and, and form community of some sort. And then those communities enter into these 
these communi communities of a different type that are more live in the digital space or often there's people, leaders of these communities or representatives that come and meet in person, is that right? Like at the Hate Street Commons? Yeah, the Hate Street Commons, there's definitely organizing among the communities and an attempt to, for people within the communities to get to know each other and share resources with each other. Uh, right. Within the embassy network, uh, I think the primary connection between those is that when individuals in one of the intentional communities travel to these other locations, they have a a home to go to right. and uh, new people to meet there that they're already loosely affiliated with. Right, that's beautiful. And so is the Hate Street Commons network, I'm using the term network just to distinguish between like a, like a housing cooperative and a, and, you know, and a larger community. So Hate Street Commons, they are a part of the embassy network, is that, is that right? Or they're like a separate thing? No, there's only one um, actually, I think maybe two or three of the communities in the HG Commons are also members of the Embassy Network. Right, okay. That would be um, the Red Victorian. Right. And the Embassy, and I'm San Francisco, and I'm not sure that there's yeah. any other. Yeah, I think Bus Patch in Oakland is actually okay. connected to the Embassy as well. The, the, yeah. yeah, the Embassy Network. I think yeah. you're right about that. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Okay, so we have we have lots of communities, and then we have these networks that like uh, share best practices, share ideas, and kind of organize because there's there's a lot of there's legal troubles, right, for some of these communities. Um, I mean, yeah, what's really the what's the yeah. what would you say? How would you like articulate the the reason for existing for like the Embassy Network or the Hate Street Commons Network? reason for existing um, for the Hate Street Commons is to um, share resources and to know each other as a community. Um, I'm sure that they've actually expressed that much better on their materials. Right. Um, yeah. Embassy Network, I think, is more of an opportunity to share, share opportunities and the, the uh, exchange of ideas with people around the world. Awesome. So it's a slightly different mission there. Right. Wait, what's the distinction again? I, I kind of lost it. Uh, so, so the Embassy Network attempts to ex exchange ideas, and it does so very, very well, I think. I've met lots of really interesting people. Hmm. Um, the the Heights Street Commons is more, since it's a local network instead of an international network, right. it's more about sharing resources locally. Right. So it's, it's almost like Heights Street Commons is more of a practical um, resource sharing space, and uh, the embassy is, is more theoretical almost, or m more idea, bigger picture. Yeah, and, and they're both ways to build community, which is wonderful. And I think maybe the most, the, the really the reason intentional communities exist in the first place. Right, right. Awesome. Okay, but back to the original question. Yeah. What, uh, within the, oh, you mentioned, you mentioned the a community out in South Bay, right? Rainbow something? Rainbow Mansion. Rainbow Mansion, okay. Yeah. So what is it about Rainbow Mansion that that is interesting to you? Well, or explain, maybe you could explain what Rainbow Mansion is. So I'm curious. Okay, well, actually the same people who founded the Embassy San Francisco and the Embassy Network, which would be uh, Jesse and Robbie Shingler and Will Marshall, uh, they previously started Rainbow Mansion down ah. in Cupertino. Okay. And we had uh, salons 
frequently on Sundays where we'd have interesting people come and speak and have a discussion with dinner. Uh, we would have, um, we had a great library. Uh, we had several startups begin there, including um, Open ROV. Um, that's Eric's company, and it's been very, very successful with their underwater drones um, exploring the world. Uh. Um, and um, Planet Labs, which I believe is now called Planet, head, headed by Will Marshall. Wow. So, and so did you live there? Yeah, I was, I was fortunate to be a resident there for a while. It was a great experience. Awesome. Okay, so, so Rainbow Mansion sounds like it's a, it's a mansion in Cupertino, you said? Yes, it's, it's more, it's, it's a pretty typical house for the neighborhood it's in, but um, somehow I got that name before I moved in. I think it was probably all the uh, granite and marble that <laughs> was included in the architecture. Ah. And so, uh, big house, lots of rooms, shared kitchen, multiple bathrooms, is that kind of? Yeah, we usually had about um, seven to nine residents. So it was pretty small in terms of some of the other intentional communities I've seen. Um, but we had a lot of people who had come through in the, the small hostel we built in the upstairs bonus room and um, a lot of, of visitors coming through for events. So. It was we, we hosted them some super happy dev houses there, which was the early an early um, hackathon. What did you call it? Super, super ha happy dev house. I think it was the uh, it was founded by I believe um, David Weekly and Joel Franisich. I think they invented the concept of hackathons, and it was called Super Happy Dev House back then. And super cool! Wow, it was yeah, it was a lot of fun. So you had some long-term residents, and then you had a little bit of a hostel up top, you said? Yeah. We, there were usually people who were long, pretty long-term residents in our hostel as well, you know, maybe coming in for a summer internship at NASA, uh, that kind of thing. At NASA? Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, we had a lot of NASA people. I think there's, there's probably still NASA people there, for, <laughs> for all I know. Wow. Um, the house is still going in Cupertino. Wow. And they're still throwing salons Whoa. and having speakers over. No way. Yeah. That sounds like a great place. I wish I lived there. So how much did it cost to be a long-term resident there? Oh, gosh. I don't know what it, they charge now, but back in the day when I was there, 2011, um, it was $1,000 for one of the for a private room. Okay. Um, and then there which was... Which was a great, great price even, you know, even then. For, for that area? Yeah, right. for that area and for the fact that um, we had a lot of food costs that were included in that as well and weekly house cleaning, so... Nice. Okay. All right. I definitely so want... One of the benefits of intentional communities is that you're not all individually paying for uh, a living room and a kitchen, right? Those, those public spaces costs are shared, so you're able to get a lot more for your money when you live in community. Right, totally, totally. <clears throat> and I definitely want to hear more about everything that was included in that $1,000 because every community is different. Mm -hmm. um, some people do the food share, some people don't. Yeah. Uh, but what, so, so 1000 to have your private room, and then the, there was like uh, multiple beds and rooms, and that was the hostel style. What was the price on that? Um, we just had one of those, and that was, um, at the time, I don't know what they do now, but it was 450 a month. Okay. So very reasonable. And then did you have like a level for just a nightly or a weekly 
stay? No, no, we didn't uh, do that. Okay, so it was like monthly was was minimum. Cool. Uh, and then you had a big like um, kind of big space for events. It sounds like. Yeah, we had um, a living room and a family room, and they were they were pretty spacious. So our our living room was also our library, and we had huge bookshelves on every wall and. Um, and it was our dining room at the same time, so <laughs> it was a great space. Very cool. And uh, how many people, like maximum, would you say you shoved in there in there at any one time for an event? Oh gosh, the most people I've probably seen in Rainbow Mansion was during our Yuri's night parties, and um, I'm guessing we probably had two or three hundred people. We also had a back patio. Um, these parties were not very popular with the neighbors <laughs> uh, who had come over in their Teslas and say, like, uh, you know, you parked in front of my house <laughs> or your, your guests parked in front of my house. Right. Wow. So, what is a Yuri's night party? Uh, that was, uh, it was, it's named after the first astronaut, the first astronaut, Yuri. Ah. And it's on, I believe, the day when they went into space. And because we had so many space people um, in Rainbow Mansion, it was essential to throw Yuri's night parties. Huh. Very cool. It's like, you know, the most important event of the year. So. Right. Yeah. Wow. Um, what, other, what other aspects of the, of the physical space do you, could you describe for us? So what was the kitchen like? I think having having a large kitchen is great for intentional communities because sharing, you know, to cook together I think is an important community activity. And we had a pretty large kitchen with a large island, so it was really easy and comfortable to cook a meal together. Yeah. Especially like a large meal together. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think I think that it, it is great to have a large and comfortable kitchen when you're living in community. Totally. Uh, and how many bathrooms? Oh, I don't even know, but we have quite a few. Okay. So that's always yeah, a good thing too. We didn't too. really have bathroom problems. Right. <laughs> what about like uh, washing dishes? What was the deal there? Was there ever? I know I lived in a big house like this, um, and that was one of the biggest sore spots was the dish you dish know, I etiquette. Think I hear that from everyone. I think dish etiquette is always the biggest deal. Yeah. Uh, the embassy now has a rule that no one can ever leave any dishes in the sink or drying anywhere. Uh, and they, they, it's the only rule of, I, I believe, it's the only rule of the embassy. And they adhere by it very strictly, and they do a great job. I've never seen any dirty dishes at the embassy, which I'm very impressed by. Wow. Oh, I didn't realize the embassy is an actual physical community yeah. as well as a, as, a, as a broader network. Yeah, so the embassy network is, is the broader network, and the San Francisco location is called the embassy. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And okay. They, they've continued the tradition of doing the salons. Ah, cool. Man, this is a whole world. This yeah, it is, world. definitely. Does the Hate Street Commons also have a physical space, too? The Hate Street Commons has a lot of different physical spaces. Like, each intentional community has their own Right, but they're their own space. They're their own name, and they're, they're just, like, connected to the network. But, like, Hate Street Commons doesn't have, like, the, like the embassy. Uh, there's not as 
there's not as far as I know a Hate Street Commons um, headquarters. Okay. Okay. Cool. All right. So, uh, what uh, what do you get for your? How was the food set up? What do you get for your your thousand dollars? You get a. Sounds like there's a food share there. Yeah, we we had a food share at Rainbow. Um, it was about. It was pretty much a vegetarian food share. Okay. Um, I think a lot of a lot of the intentional communities that I've seen, at least when they sh- share food, it seems to be vegetarian. I think that's easier. Totally. I lived in a house in Brooklyn, uh, New York, that was called the Nut House, uh-huh. and they were a bunch of raw foodists. So wow. it was it was vegan, vegan only. Um, and I was like curious, but I wasn't a vegan at that point. So I remember when I first moved in, uh, a woman took me to the supermarket to show me what I could and couldn't bring into the house. It was it was pretty intense. But anyway, uh, yeah. S- so uh, so uh, was it a, a certain amount of food, or sorry, a certain amount of money per person that all went into a collective budget that then somebody would go and buy staples for? At the time that I was living in Rainbow Mansion, we governed it by consensus, and there was um, like basically no structure or hierarchy. So um, it was a bit um, spontaneously based. Uh, after I left, um, Diana, one of my housemates, did a great job of organizing the uh, budget and food purchasing but I don't really know a lot of details on how that, on how she did that. Yeah, no. She's running a new intentional community now in Atherton ah. called Athenaeum. Huh. And uh, they seem to be a great group of people continuing the space tradition. Atherton, what, is that in California? That's, yeah, that's between, um, that's just north of Menlo Park. Oh, okay. South of Redwood City. All right. It's, it's a mostly uh, residential community. Cool. And it's, again, like a big house, lots of people in a big house. Yeah, this one, uh, it's interesting. It, the landlord um, is an older house. The landlord intends to knock it down and build a big, beautiful new mansion. Hmm. Uh, and, and in the meantime, doesn't really have any use for the house. Hmm. So they've been able to um, do fun things with the property without the landlord caring, like uh, uh, change, change the paint colors and... <laughs> that kind of thing. Very cool. And so but they have like an expiration date where they Yeah, they, they don't have they don't know what the date is yet, but they know it's coming at some wow. point. That's interesting. I like that. Um, okay. Uh, this is beautiful. I didn't realize you lived in, in such a cool community. Uh, any anything else that you feel like uh, Rainbow Mansion did right, really right that you would want to replicate in another community that you would envision? Well, I, I really liked the way that we would have uh, various people coming through and staying for a while. Did, even though, even though we, we our, our longest our shortest period of rent was for a month, we, we actually hosted guests for free, mm. and we'd have lots of people coming in from different parts of the world. And that uh, interchange of ideas, I think, helped make the home vibrant and helped it feel m- like more than just sharing a house. It felt helped us feel like. Uh, we were, were we were building something. We were building 
lots of things because lots of people had their own projects but it definitely made it feel like part of a larger community and I know the houses in the embassy network try to create that same environment of having uh, people who are traveling coming through and staying in their houses uh, to continue that interchange of ideas and I, I, I really like that aspect I think it does create an exciting community to be a part of totally totally um I, I was gonna ask you what do you feel like they like was done kind of didn't work uh, at rainbow mansion but before maybe it's related to this other question I'd, I'd like to also just ask like how how would you conceive of creating that uh or walking that 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 line between having like your the home space for the the long-term residents that's kind of like their sanctuary and they feel comfortable to walk around in their bathrobe and mm -hmm. drool on their face but then also having this the home be open to lots of new people coming in uh all the time like how how did they how did rainbow mansion walk that line that's an interesting question uh, we had so we would have so few people, you know, we'd only probably have like maximum of three guests at a time. So we felt like we knew everyone. Um, mm. I know that the embassy here in San Francisco usually has more guests than that now. And I think if you want to ask exactly how they manage that, it's probably best to talk with the people who have founded that, that community. Yeah, um, but in but in Rainbow Mansion's case, when you were there, like, how did it? Was there, was there a physical separation between the short-term people and the long-term people? No, no. I think it was just you know knowing, getting to know the people who were staying with you, made you feel comfortable with them. Right, and also it sounds like the minimum time anybody could be there was a month. So well, I just, we also had visitors. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't like um, they weren't staying over on an Airbnb or, or they weren't really strangers. They would be someone who was invited as a guest to stay. Right. So, so they were vouched for. They knew, knew yeah. somebody within the community. Cool. And then, yeah, any thoughts on things that kind of just didn't work so well that you that might have, if you were going to do a Rainbow Mansion 2.0 and you were in charge or could advocate for what, you know, what, what kind of change or, or thing did you notice that just could could need, could use improvement from your from your experience when you were living there that's an interesting question um i i think for for me um my, my answer would be would be very different i think from most people's answer which is that um i don't do very well on a diet of lots of beans and soy <laughs> yeah <laughs> so right. So I didn't really benefit a lot from the uh, food sharing. Right. Um, so if, if I were setting up a community, I think I'd want to find people with similar dietary goals to myself. Because par part of the... I, I actually think that food sharing is an important part of living in community. It helps you to bond and feel like a family. And um, I was often having to prepare my, my own food. Um I think it would be nice to be able to prepare food that other people in the house will eat that I also eat. Um, I think 
it's an important thing to think about when setting up your community is like how, how well do our diets work together? How well do our ideas about how to structure and run a community and make decisions work together? Uh, how well do our um, ideas of how to run the finances for the house work together? Uh, Jesse actually has an excellent article on Medium um, on things to think about when you are starting a, an intentional community. And also, um, the Hate Street Commons put on a conference called the Emergent Communities Conference about a month ago. Huh. And I believe um, they've collected notes and videos for all of the talks that took place there. Um, which are a great resource. So there was um, an entire session just on food and a bunch, a lot of different communities talking about what they do for food and every house had a different answer um, about, you know, ordering together or cooking together. Is there someone in charge? Is it collaborative? Everyone had their own way that they preferred to do it. Right. Um, there was a talk on finances and how do what costs are shared and how do different communities handle that. Right. So I, I think those are actually a great resource if... Um, yeah. So that was the Emergent... Emergent Communities Conference. Emergent Communities Conference. It was held, held at the Red Victorian. Cool. Wish I had made it to that. Have to watch, check that out. And then you said Jesse had the article on Medium. Jesse, if we want, Jesse Shingler. How do you how do you spell that? S C H I N G L E R. Okay, cool. Perfect. And uh, maybe we'll set up some uh, notes for this podcast, and we'll link to these. Yeah, that would be great. Um, so you you've touched on uh, a really key point um, that that actually. Uh, my question didn't really uh, incorporate, which is like there is no perfect way to do the food or do the finances. It all depends on who's coming together in this community. Yeah, I do think it's specific to the community. Right. So what's what's perfect for you uh, may be one thing, but then what's perfect for you and the seven other people that you're starting a community might be different. Um, and you know, if you had a different collection of people, you guys might decide to compromise on other things. Yeah, um, I think people th people think about that when they're looking at joining a community. How well do their own needs and habits and values match with the community that they're joining? Right, but you know, often people are thrown together for you know for di various reasons, and it, and often it's not about their food choices, right? It's about their their lo physical location, uh, maybe they're aligned on like a, a profession or, or a, you know, they all want to start businesses or they're all artists. Mm -hmm. um, and so then you've got to, you know, in my case, in my community, we're all pedicab drivers, you know, but we all have different views on what the community should be. So there's, there is a lot of negotiating and compromise. Interesting. Right? Would you yeah. say, say that's true in the communities you've seen? Yeah, um, yeah. I think sometimes when there's a well-established uh, way of doing something that the majority of members adhere to, like the vegetarianism at Rainbow, um, 
if, if you're the odd one out, you just kind of have to compromise and find your way around it. Right. But if it's worth it to you, then you do that, right. um, which it was for me. And I suppose um, when there's more diversity with, with, with something, whatever that issue is in the community, then perhaps you have an ongoing negotiation, at least until something, some solution materializes that becomes stable or semi-permanent, right? Right. And I was just reading a, an article uh, on Medium, I can't remember the title, but it was a woman that had toured a few communities, lived in a few of them, and, and wrote some kind of thoughts and wisdom on it. And one thing she, she highlighted that was interesting to me is um, distinguishing kind of like an overarching philosophy of what a community is. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's, there's kind of maybe... She, she used the example of... Um, Oh, it was uh, there was an overflowing. There was there was a community where there was trash that was overflowing, mm-hmm. and there was a debate. There was two sides within the community uh, over the solution to this problem. One side was, uh, let's just all buck up and clean up after ourselves and take care of our community more. Let's be more proactive to clean up. The other side was, let's pool our money together and pay for someone to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she used that example to say that there, that there was kind of a split in philosophies of, of, of how a community should operate. One, on the one side, it was a community, uh, some people believe that a community should be run by, collectively by everybody. Everybody should do their part um, and it should be as cheap as possible. And then on the other side, there's people that value their time over their money and may think that certain some of their money should go to solving some of these problems. I don't know if that's a distinction you would make or if you would make a different one, but do you think there's some, like, one question or one kind of way to to weed out people so that you can solve those those all those other questions about how to do food, how to do maid service, or, or if you do it or not, um, based on how somebody answers like one question or how somebody approaches a community. Does that make sense? I think that if you have an established community, you need to understand and clearly define how your community works and then make sure that new members are on board with that. Um, So if, if you have a community where everyone helps take out the garbage, then you want to probably make sure not to and if that's an important value to you, then um, you know don't don't bring someone in who refuses to touch the garbage at any cost, right? But if, on the other hand, you're a community that doesn't really care if one person wants to pay extra to hire a maid to do their work, um, then you know you roll with that. So I think it really depends on what your community's values and strongly held beliefs are. Yeah, but I mean, I think. I think there is a distinction about paying for stuff versus doing it, finding a way to get it done mm-hmm. within the community. I don't know if, if you see that distinction, but um, I definitely have, yeah, I think I've gotten in those debates with people, and I've been on both sides in, in how mm-hmm. to to do s- solve specific problems within the community. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I guess what I'm trying to get at is if if your if your worldview, for lack of a better term, of how a community should should operate, is 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 too opposed from someone else, you're always gonna find yourself in conflict over every decision, like about how we do the food, how we do the trash, how mm -hmm. we do all these different things. Mm -hmm. Does that? Do w would you agree to that? I don't know. Are you saying that this person already lives with you, or they haven't moved in yet? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I'm saying I live with people that think about what a community should be differently mm -hmm. than I do. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. So, and you don't find those things out until they move in, and you start to actually get into a discussion about the overflowing trash. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, for instance, in my case, I think some of the people I live with, their idea of a community is more like um, just neighbors. Um, you know, that every you have your own space, they have their own space, we talk mm. and have pleasantries, yeah. um, but that's it. Uh, whereas my idea of community is a little bit more of we all take collective ownership over the space and mm -hmm. we, we collectively work on improving it and keeping it tidy and stuff like that, whereas that's... The, c the communal space for some people in my community is just, like, not their problem. Mm -hmm. So that's a constant source of conflict. And if, you, and if we, we had weeded our ourselves out and maybe there was one community that was all kind of stranger neighbors and there was another community that was all kumbaya hippies, mm -hmm. then those, there might be less uh, controversy over each little decision. Uh -huh. I don't know. I, that's just, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know if you agree style that. And yeah, I can see how the two trying to live together could cause conflict. Yeah. Especially if you have expectations for another person that they don't feel obligated to meet and have no desire to meet. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like the smaller conversations are, are the smaller disagreements are really a, a larger underlying yeah. disagreement. About what the nature of the relationship is. Yeah, yeah. Do, would you, do you, did you see any of that in your, d did you see a lot of uh, conflict uh, in, in the, the time you were living at Rainbow Mansion or other communities that you've been a part of or seen? When I moved into Rainbow Mansion, it had already been around for about five years, so there was pretty much a well-established way of doing things, um, and uh, that, that helped because we had an idea of what to expect and what we were signing up for by becoming part of the community. Right. Yeah, that's, there's a lot to be said for, like, a set established way of doing things and the hard part is like when you're starting something from scratch then it's everything's fair game right that's a, that's a different question yeah so starting something new yeah before you've established those traditions right okay so how did you get attracted to this whole cooperative living situation what what brought you to what what why are you interested in this? Is there like an origin story? I went to um, I went to university in England, and um, we had a very walkable city in Oxford, mm. um, where you every day just going about your day you would end up saying hello to two or three people you knew on the street and stopping and having conversations with them. And then when I moved back to the United States, I found it was um, a much more disconnected world where you didn't have a lot of those accidental uh, meetings with people. Um, 
you don't spend a lot of time walking from place to place here and interacting with people uh, just by, by walking from place to place. Uh, even if you do walk, you're probably outside of San Francisco. <laughs> in, in other part, I was in the South Bay at the time. You drive places, and if you walk, you're probably the only one on the sidewalk. Totally, yeah. So I really wanted to be, uh, create for myself a feeling of, the, you know, the, the traditional village where you're a part of community instead of living alone and isolated, um, which is the situation we've made for ourselves in so many suburbs. Totally, yeah. I mean, you keyed in on what I hear all the time in these types of discussions is that loneliness is like a m massive epidemic that's running through the whole country. I mean, maybe even the whole, you know, modern Western world. Um, and this, this seems like a great antidote to that. So, and how did you, f how did you fall down the rabbit hole to get, to get into Rainbow Mansion? Is that, is there any interesting story there? How did you, how did you connect up with this? It sounds like a really cool group of people. I actually went to a super happy dev house. Ah. And while I was there, I heard one of the residents of Rainbow Mansion mention that a room would be coming up soon. I actually didn't ask to stay there at the time, but I started hanging out um, at Rainbow Mansion and that fall another room came available and I asked, inquired about it. So. Nice. Um, cool. Uh, and all right. So and now we should say you are a real estate agent mm -hmm. and you have an interest in helping people, groups start cooperatives, right? Yes. So maybe you could paint paint a little bit of a picture of how you could help uh, a group set up a cooperative with your, your skills in real estate? Well, I believe that in order for intentional communities to exist over the long run, it really helps a lot for them to own the space that they are using for that community. And um, there's lots of different ways that communities have done this. Um, some communities form a partnership or an LLC to hold the property um, with some form of equity for members, or uh, they join a land trust, um, which may or may not have an equity-like option for members of the community. Uh, other times, um, you'll be paying some form of rent into um, the nonprofit or um, trust that owns owns the land. So I, there's lots of different models, and I I wouldn't say that I think that any one is better than than any other. I think it it's again what's specifically best for that particular community and what they're trying to achieve and what their goals are as a community. Right, and with and with the equity piece, that that doesn't you don't get that payoff until the community dissolves and they sell the house or sell the land? I think that there are some land trusts in the Bay Area where, um, and some cooperatives, uh, that where you get, um, where you buy in and when you leave the community you get uh, an equity share back, but not to, not not to the full market price generally. Right. 
um, because they generally try to keep this affordable. Right. Um, but that again, that's the choice of the community right. that creates the structure. And how? What's your role in assisting in this as a real estate agent? How would you? What's the service that you could provide to? Is your target a group? or a founder, loan founder? No, or I, I don't provide legal advice, actually, but I can connect people to, to legal advisors who do, for, you know, do provide advice to um, intentional communities that are, are, are purchasing a home and, and what kind of legal structure they want to set up to do that. But you, but you will help I, them I buy the help house? Them, yeah, help them find the right home for their community or if, if they currently have one then uh, help them obtain that and get a great, um, you know, make, the, make, make sure they're not taken advantage of by the owner of the home. So you can, if somebody, if there's a group already in existence that's leasing their space, you could help negotiate the purchase of that space yes. for them. Yeah. And or find a, a, a fresh space for a group that's looking to start something. Yeah and add on, you've got experience on how, and, and you can point people in the right direction for legal resources and setting up their community and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that the biggest obstacle a lot of people face in forming an intentional community is, is just um, not knowing how to move forward. Um, not knowing how to, w what the resources are and how to make the decisions. So what I try to provide people with um, resources and people to talk to um, and but yeah, both you know, legal structures, accounting, um, the finances that they might need, the various financial options for um, buying uh, a property as a community, which of course varies by their, their legal structure. So it's good to have a variety of options to go in that direction. Cool. So. Maybe you could just t tell us a little bit about your history uh, as a real estate agent. How long have you been an agent, and what's your what's been kind of your your story, uh, your oh. journey, your journey in the in the world of of real estate? Oh well, I, I've actually um, so far I've mostly facilitated transactions for regular single family residential um, nuclear family units. Um, I've I've helped. Um, intentional communities look for homes, um, and um, I've been preparing <laughs> by connecting with a bunch of, of resources and learning as much as I can, um, because I, I'd love to help intentional communities with their, you know, developing a more stable foundation for long-term endurance and growth as a community. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. And yeah, how long have you been doing it? I think I got my license in 2006. Wow, I, I long time. I didn't start working full time in real estate until 2010. Right, but yeah, that's a, it's been a, while. a solid set of experiences. Yeah, would you say that there is a, a trend towards more cooperatives now? Just anecdotally, do you, do you feel like there's more people interested thinking about this? I think there's a lot of interest in. Uh, in communal housing because in the Bay Area, frankly, because of housing prices, a lot more people are thinking about sharing their homes. And when you are sharing a house with other people long term into your 20s and 30s, uh, 
you start you don't want to just be living with strangers that you don't necessarily get along with and don't necessarily talk to so you start wanting to uh, create a, a deeper relationship with the people that you share your home with and that can lead to really interesting and creative communities growing out of that totally yeah well said and um do you have an interest in moving into a community in, if the right group came across your way? We'll see what happens. You don't live in a community now, right? No. And could you unpack a little bit why you decided to leave Rainbow? Like what, there's a trade-off, right? Uh, between living on your own and living, I'm assuming you live on your own or? Well, I recently, um, I was recently went and and stayed in a rural village in um, in Crete, actually. Cool. And um, it's it's the village my great grandfather is from, and it's still a traditional village with the tiny town square that people sit and drink coffee in. And you know, if, if I went into the big city. Uh, which wasn't, it's the biggest city on the island, but not very big. And I come back in, in the evening, people would ask me, people I didn't know knew that I'd gone into town would be say, oh, how was your day in town? Did you go to the beach? You, know, you really need to go to the beach. Um, yeah, having conversations with the, the grocery store owner who's, you know, always the same person and, um, it's it's very nice. It was very nice for me to experience um, community in in the traditional, uh, at least the traditional European sense. Yeah. Um, and I, I I feel like um, people there would tell me, um, "Oh, you're so lucky, so lucky to live in America. Um, you know, why would you want to visit here in Greece?" And I would say, "Well." You know, all of the, uh, you know, a lot of the tech CEOs who make all this money back in California, they're trying to create that feeling of community that you have right here in this village that you've had for hundreds of years, mm. uh, probably over a thousand years. And, you know, you have it naturally. The, the, the widows, the old people who no longer work, they're not lonely because people walk down the street and, and stop in the open door and say hello mm. and oh sit down have have some coffee and have have some food I have some food on the stove in case guests walk in because I knew they would and so so people it, it actually it works really well for combating loneliness when you have that village set up and I think these intentional communities that are forming are an attempt to create that same kind of village atmosphere and that that same kind of community feeling that we've lost so much yeah yeah we kind of talked about i had some more questions about your research on cooperatives and your your experiences with the co with collective cooperative housing um and any so i'll just ask if there's any any other like insights or patterns or trends that you've come across in your exposure to all, to this world but we've, I know we've touched on a lot of this already, so it's fine if you haven't. Well, this, this, is not, um, this isn't a pattern or a trend, but there is something, there's an interesting community that I've been thinking about because it's, 
a much older one still in the Bay Area uh, that, that most people haven't heard about and um, that has been very successful in a sense and it's a very different structure. So I find it really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Have uh, a lot of people in the Bay Area have heard of Villa Montavo as an event venue. So a lot of people have gone to concerts there and the beautiful grounds of this beautiful mansion or they've gone hiking there or they've gone to art shows. Uh, Back, I think about 80 years ago, the uh, owner of the home, when he passed away, donated this property to foster arts and um, arts education in the community. And part of that was to have a residential aspect for artists. So until about 10 years ago, the main mansion was inhabited um, by artists. It was an artist residence, and they had artists in residence hmm. um, at Villa Montalvo. And now they have, um, they built some additional buildings on the property, and they have um, shorter-term artist residences of about, I think, three months, and artists rotate in and out. But I had the good fortune of having dinner with the artists um, how about, about five years ago, I think. And it felt very much like the type of community that we'd formed at Rainbow Mansion. Hmm. So a very much a vibrant interchange of ideas among the artists. And um, they have communal meals together with a resident um, chef who's doing creative um, artistic things with food. And um, this is actually like a program that's, that's sponsored by the community and I think there might be a stipend for the artists as well and they create um, art for the grounds of Villa Montalvo while they're there on this, um, for, I forget what the name of the program is, but as, as part of this residency. And where's Villa Montavo? Villa Montavo is down in Saratoga, which is the community I grew up in. Oh. And it's interesting because growing up, I, I visited Villa Montavo frequently because of the great grounds there for going on hikes. I think the first time I was ever there was in preschool. Uh, but, um, and I've been there for um, fundraising benefits. But I didn't really realize about the artist community that was there. And it's interesting because there's all this, um, there's this beautiful engagement between the, the, the natural environment, the built environment, the volunteers, the community, um, and the artists, all to for the development of art, the interchange of artistic ideas, and the education and involvement of the community in art. Hmm. Um, and it, it all takes place in, in a community that's not particularly um, radical or experimental or progressive mm. um, and even the most conservative members of the of the city of Saratoga love Villa Montavo and mm. volunteer to support it uh, it's a nonprofit, and it's been having artist residencies I think for over 50 years um, so it's, it's probably one of the Bay Area's longest uh, intentional communities in that sense Wow. Apart from um, whatever's been developing in San Francisco from communes, or you right. probably know more about that than I do. 
Uh, right, yeah, the 70s, uh, back to the land, mm. intentional community wave. Yeah, that's that's an interesting time. Side note is, uh, I don't know, if I'm sure you watch Netflix. There's a great Netflix series called Wild Country about this um, intentional community that was started in uh, India based on a, a, an Indian guru, um, and they went to Oregon. Yeah. And to, have you heard of this? No. Okay, yeah, and it's like, you know, very rural, conservative, small-town community, and they bought all this land, and then hijinks ensue. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's really good. It's like hippies meet, you know, red state America huh. in the 70s, and, you know, big clashes. Yeah. Oh, but interesting. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it's a really well done, um, fascinating series. Anyway, um, okay, so I have a couple questions that just popped up. Mm -hmm. If you'll indulge. Uh, so I guess the first would be um, a lot of these communities sound beautiful, but they they also have limited space and they, um, they have a screening process. Mm -hmm. And let's say you just don't make the cut. Um, what would you advise? How would you advise someone? who uh, is interested in living in a community, they, they're, they're agree in agreement with you on all these reasons uh, for why, but they can't, uh, they haven't been able to get into the few that are in their, their area. Wow. How, like if they wanted to start one or mm -hmm. meet other people that would want to start one, how would you advise someone to go about that? I know that the Hate Street Commons has several times as many people applying to live in one of the communities, then there are spaces available. Mm. So obviously there's a lot of opportunity for starting new communities. And I think it would benefit a lot of people. I know that some organizations have started uh, for-profit co-housing to kind of fill that gap. So WeWork has started something called We Live um, there's an organization, I think, called Star City, mm. and these are all for-profit co-housing groups that um, are aiming at creating a sense of community. And to some extent, if if um, if individuals aren't don't feel that that they they have the resources to put together a community on their own. That and they and they want to live in one, then it makes sense to to go that route. Um, but people, I think, can have a a more vibrant experience and often get a lot more for their money um, if they're if they're doing a not for profit um, intentional community or co housing initiative. So. Uh, I think that's why it's really important to have resources that can guide you through creating a community. Like resources from the people that are trying to start it? People, people share best practices. I know um, the, the Hate Street Commons has uh, sort of a Git, oh, um, open source Git document on, on, um, on uh, intentional communities, mm. their own best practices for what they're doing. Right. As, as I mentioned, um, Jesse has published, right. um, a number of people have published their learnings from, uh, a document was just going around the other day from a National Land Trust organization uh, has published a document on what causes uh, co-ops to die. 
mm. and what their learnings were from uh, experiencing the endurance or death of so many different co-ops over over decades. I think. What What did they What did you What, what did they come to? Did you get a chance to? Gosh, you know, I, I did um, read the synopsis, but I don't remember what its conclusions were at the moment. I, I didn't necessarily agree with all of them, but I, I felt that I was going to have to read the fuller document to see if if I was going to be persuaded yeah. to, to his side. Interesting. Um, That's very interesting. I think one of the things he said was you needed, I remember, I'm remembering some now, one of the things was that you, that you should have at least one full-time paid staff member. Hmm. Uh, another thing was um, that all members should put physical labor into, at least a little bit of physical labor into household activities, which mm, goes back to game. what you were talking about, about like, should we, you know, we pay someone to take out the garbage? Yeah. Um, another one was that at least, I think he said 20% of the members should be involved more than that. Um, normal amount of involvement in investing in the community. There should be additional opportunities for some people to invest more in guiding huh. the community. I think one was that one was that the property should be owned by. I think he said by a nonprofit. I could be wrong about that, hmm. um, but something to some kind of legal structure to keep the the property kind of permanently a part of and independent from other organizations. What did you say the name of that article was? Or is a paper, right? Yeah, I'd have to find that for you. I don't remember the but exact it was title right now. But it was by the Land Trust Association? The Nas National Land Trust. Th and that's not the exact name of the organizations. So I'd have to look it up for you. But it's basically one of the, the National Land Trust um, organization. Cool. Yeah, that's enough for me to Google it. Thanks. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I wish I was, since this is a podcast, I wish I could tell you the, well, we'll the actual name of the organization. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll point to it in the in the notes. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so uh, it sounds like a big part of it, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is a big hurdle uh, to starting a community is just like the that initial oomph to get it get the ball moving down the mm -hmm. hill, right? Like, is that, would you say, that, agree that that's a, a setback? Like, everybody's just kind of waiting. Everybody's trying to get into existing communities because that's the, there's already systems in place. There's already a yeah. space. And, like, the hard part is getting a group together and starting purchasing land, leasing land, and s starting the whole process. Would you agree with that? I, I think that's that's accurate because people there's always risk with uncertainty and a lack of knowledge. But I also know that a lot of um, successful existing communities are happy to guide and mentor new communities through forming. And um, I know that the um, land trust organizations, there's a San Francisco land trust, and that's actually the name of the organization. <laughs> there's another organization called the Bay Area Land Trust. And those both provide education for new communities that want to establish as co-ops under um, a land trust. Uh, mm. The High Street Commons is, is very happy to mentor people through forming new communities. 
I believe the Embassy Network has been doing that for some time, mm. uh, helping people start these intentional communities all over the world. Mm. Uh, so probably the best way to move forward is to get in touch with a local organization that already has formed a co-op or intentional community and that has done something similar to what you'd like to do and yeah. ask them to help mentor you through that process. Right, and it sounds like the, the best way that that would work is you would have like a core group of founders that are really motivated to do that, that deep dive into the resources and work with somebody who's already experienced in doing it and yeah. learn all that uh, and then do all that legwork. But if you don't have that group of people and you just have a bunch of people that just need housing, um, how would you how would you envision like some of the solutions that some of the organizations that could step in to solve that problem? I mean, you mentioned the WeWork and the right. these other for profit. Well, there's definitely opportunity there for people who want to do for profit co housing, and, yeah. and definitely there's people stepping into that. Um, mm. And what are they? And what what are they? What what are they doing? What's kind of like the the building blocks that they're solving for? They're acquiring that space. Yeah, um, they're they're acquiring spaces, um, and advertising those spaces. Right, right, and the, yeah, and then and running those them, spaces. Right, managing yeah. them. Right, right, because those are all the big big pain points. Yeah. Right. So I guess we yeah we touched on. Um, things that work and things that kind of don't work. Uh, maybe I'm beating this, this horse, but I, I know there's a lot of, there's a wealth of knowledge out there and, and you, you've tapped into a bit of it. So I don't know if there's any, any other thoughts that come to mind on things that kind of common things to avoid in constructing or running a cooperative. I wouldn't say that, that I'm expert enough to, to be able to fully comment on that. Yeah. But I, I do think maybe one interesting thing that's worth talking about uh, the most common topic that that um, people tend to request from conferences on intentional communities right now seems to be uh, how do you raise children mm. in an intentional community? Mm. And I've been to two um, conferences so far: the emergence, the emergent community conference this spring, and a similar conference about five years ago and in both of them we had sessions on raising children in community and a lot of intentional communities have done it um, you know there's the the intentional communities in Israel that are very famous for being successful and lasting a very long time that, that all raise yes all raise their children in community but um, in the Bay Area right now people seem to have a lot of hesitation and doubt on whether an intentional community would be the right place to raise children or how to make it work without annoying their single housemates. Um, when right. I lived at Rainbow, one of my housemates wanted to have children and we all said, if you did that, we would love it and we will support you. Mm -hmm. But she actually ended up um, marrying somebody and, and moving out and starting a nuclear family, mm -hmm. which was interesting. So. Uh, I'm curious what, what came up in some of those discussions, but I'm guessing that one solution for that is you you bake into the, the design of the community space for families, like bigger 
bigger living spaces with maybe multiple rooms or or it's a community that that is designed for families and only families are allowed into it or what what kind of I think that's interesting because it brings up like how do you think about um, children in a family right because a lot of these intentional communities think of themselves as a family instead of as Mm. families living in a shared building Mm. so some people have said it's actually better if you still share the common spaces and where think of the children as belonging to the same large family that everyone else belongs to. But mm. then I've also seen intention or co-ops where people also have their own separate private smaller kitchen and smaller living rooms so that they have some privacy as a nuclear family. Right, so like I, like yeah. the co-housing models in Denmark and other parts of the world and yeah. yeah so it comes yeah. back to what are people's philosophies and just being on the same page with those. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I think that, that probably if you if when you're you're starting an intentional community, if you're already if you already start thinking about how could children be a part of this picture, you can probably form something that's that is going to feel more welcoming to people who are considering starting families or make people who eventually consider starting families more comfortable with staying as a part of the community while they do that. Yeah, and I'm just like thinking, you know, this reminds me, I I lived at one point in a community in the mission called mm-hmm. the Black Cat, and it was, there was, there was two families, I guess, with kids, you know, and it wasn't a big deal, uh, and there was like a cool little TV room where I watched Saved by the Bell, and yeah, it wasn't, you know, we just lived with our parents in the same room, and mm-hmm. yeah, it wasn't a big deal. Um, Okay, um, so there's another topic of discussion, and that is the housing crisis, and specifically this this term of homeless mm-hmm. that that we had an interesting discussion about early yeah. in a previous conversation, um, <coughs> which would be fun to talk about. But I wanted to stay with this community structure for a second and mm-hmm. just ask the question of how do you see? Because we talk a lot about constructing communities for homeless folks Mm -hmm. or people that are unhoused, that are lived on the streets. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm very interested in these tiny house communities that could form. But how do you see uh, kind of the cooperative model with with folks that are coming off the streets, homeless folks, the the labeled homeless folks? Mm -hmm. Is that possible? There's different considerations. Is Is it just the same set of considerations as other people? Yeah, I think it's kind of, in a sense, the very terms that we're using make the conversation difficult because we we try to create in our minds this idea of what is this homeless person, but um, really all that term means is is there someone who, for whatever reason, either by um, ability or choice, is not living in a shelter or at least not living in a permanent built shelter uh, for the long term. Um, or, or if they are, it's not one where that they they own and have control um, over the long term of, of their residency there. Right. So I know that um, legally, adult children living with their parents can be considered homeless. Really? Um, because they don't have a lot of control over the environment of where they're living. Hmm. Um, so, so. We, we uh, in San Francisco, people living in um, single 
SROs, single residency. Occupant, single resident occupancy, yeah. Yeah, those, they're considered homeless. Really? Even if they've, I believe, even if they've been there for years. Wow. Um, people living in campers, yeah. RVs, even though they, they often consider themselves to have a home, are often considered to be homeless. Uh, I know there was an article a few years ago in the newspaper about this man who was a Google employee, and yeah. there was an entire article profiling how he was living in a truck in the Google parking lot. And interestingly enough, I think under a lot of definitions, he would be considered homeless. Yeah. Um, but when we, we think about homeless people, we don't tend to think about Google employees living in their trucks by choice or adult children who are living with their parents, which is a remarkably high, high percentage of millennials still mm. um, compared to past generations. Right. Yeah, so when we talk about homeless, we're, we're talking about that highly visible person that um, is on the streets that's, that's visible because we, we know there's a bunch of, there's a whole, there's a whole set of people that are, mm -hmm. that are in the shadows homeless, living in their cars, finding various solutions to but housing. The highly visible ones aren't necessarily the ones that, that are unsheltered, right? But they, they, if someone's highly visible, it's probably because they're there in the daytime in an obvious place. Right. And they, those, those people, we might you might think of them as the homeless, but, but right. they, might, they could be sheltered. It's hard to say. That's such a great point. I mean, I know... I know I live by a guy who asks for spare change at the West Oakland BART station. I know where he lives, but he presents as if he's homeless to get spare change. And I, I lived, with, lived near a guy in New York who did the exact same thing. But on the other hand, then sometimes you see someone who's huddled under a blanket on the sidewalk sleeping. And that's a very different situation. Right. The UN was here um, just a couple months ago and published a report saying that the poor in America, and, and they, they said this after visiting the Tenderloin in San Francisco, the poor in America have a worse quality of life than the poor in third world countries such as India and third world African countries. Totally, yeah. So, and I've mentioned this to people in San Francisco, and at first they think I've made a mistake, and then I say, and they, and they say, well, I, I've seen how poor people look in these third world countries. And I said, but don't the people that you see in, in, in the photographs or in your travels, they had a, had a little shack they could live in, couldn't they? Yeah. Their tent wasn't torn down by the police. They, they had a place where they could uh, use the bathroom. Yeah. Right? They often even have a place where they can bathe. Yeah. Um, for instance, in India, people bathe in rivers. There's not really a place to bathe in San Francisco. Most yeah. most areas of San Francisco, there's there's not any kind of shelter that you can leave up that doesn't eventually pretty quickly get torn down. You can't even use the bathroom, no. uh, especially well, especially people do, yeah. but they don't have a private place to do it. Right. right. So um, so the end result is that people in San Francisco have a so, so much of a worse quality of life when they're poor right. than than do this the same stratum of, of poverty in third world countries, that the UN is condemning America. Right. For the, the, and it's very fascinating here in San Francisco. If you go to the Tenderloin or even Soma, you probably have 
possibly the most inequality on within 100 feet than anywhere else in the world in the same amount of space, where you actually can have billionaires and people living in worse conditions than in an Indian slum within 100 feet of each other at, at any point in time. And uh, that, makes this that makes this a really incredible, not in a good way, <laughs> in, a, in a very interesting kind of way. Um, place to, to be right now because we have such incredible problems. Totally. And uh, on that note, there is a really great uh, podcast series on uh, done by On The Media. Uh, it's a five-part series. It's called Busted, and it's all on these myths that we have about the poor, um, you know, uh, the welfare mom, and, and unpacking a lot of these myths about who poor people are and kind of our, our cultural baggage around what a poor person is and and their value um, it's fascinating but but again like w that term homeless paints a picture that if you if you've walked around the San Francisco streets or, or the Bay Area especially right now that picture includes someone who is um, you know like physically like you can physically see their st a st you can physically you know see like Dirty clothes, uh, like like open sores. You can see, you know, somebody talking to themselves. You can see, you know, somebody shooting up. Um, whether or not they're homeless or not, that's that's the image, at least in my mind, and I feel like in many people's minds. Because about this is taking place in a public space. Right. Yeah. Right. I, th I think it is very sad when you see people who have. Um, untreated wounds or have obviously not had the opportunity to bathe. We live in a hygiene desert here in San Francisco. Um, a hygiene desert for the poor. Hmm. Um, but you, know, you also have people who don't have access to housing, who, who sleep on buses and, and shower in gyms and right. do their very best to look as normal as they can. Right, right, right. Uh, some people haven't been able to manage that, and I, and I imagine the more you, you have um, various limitations, maybe the harder it is to go. There's not a lot of gyms with showers, 24-hour gyms with showers in San Francisco anymore. Right. Uh, it's probably becomes harder and harder to co coordinate those kinds of activities. Right. And there is, there is, like, there is a, a large group of people that, that have mental situations that make it make them not able to function in the the world that we've set up for better or for worse and so yeah I do think that uh, there does seem to be talking to people people seem to think it's the majority of unsheltered people have right. mental health issues right. that hasn't been my experience yeah my experience when I've visited encampments or volunteered is that most people I've interacted with don't have any noticeable mental health problems. Um, it doesn't take mental health problems to not be able to afford a $2,000 a month apartment in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, I met a, a disabled man uh, in San Francisco who tells me he told me that he got um, $55,000 a year from um, veterans' disability, um, he was he was a paraplegic, uh, and he doesn't have housing, and to some extent, that's 
pretty understandable, even though that amount of income would make him quite comfortable in some parts of the U.S. and definitely many parts of the world. Totally. How much was that he made? He told me he gets $55,000 a year from veterans' disability. Yeah, I feel like I met somebody similar. Yeah, and it was the guy that I met said he part of the him, the conditions for him to get that check was that he had to be homeless and so he, he wow. lived he lived in a tent down in Oakland West Oakland to huh, to keep that, that income going yeah I didn't get to unpack it but yeah okay so you don't like the mental health accusation well what well, about I, I mean no 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 I, I know, I know. nobody <laughs> no 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 I, I, I and, and, and there shouldn't be a stigma against mental health either right like if, if you have a mental disability it's not because you you chose to have it no no for sure for sure but the, uh, I guess what I'm getting at there's two things is is um, when people talk about what do we do about these these encampments what mm-hmm. do we do about these people y- usually it's uh, or a lot of it the people that are that have the power to do something that are having these discussions that actually mean something are people are business owners are politicians that ha- who their their interest is to have clean streets and if business owners want to have clean streets i think they should talk to each other about installing some public toilets and public showers totally. because yeah. uh, you know if ancient Greece and ancient Rome could have public baths for all of its citizens and that was 2000 years ago in, in the richest one of the richest cities in the world I think we could probably figure it out now yeah, that's a great point yeah but then then you have this other overlying issue of you know based on our our minds about how society works and it's a you know the you play the game is is like should this person be setting up their house, whatever version it is, whether it's a tent or a, or a tiny house or an RV, mm-hmm. should they be setting it up on public streets uh, in front of my where else my storefront? <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so that's this is right. like where do where do they go? But but um, so I guess I, I want to just back up. So let's let's continue with this unpacking of the term homeless. Mm-hmm. So we kind of debunked. You debunked. The myth of of the mental mental mentally ill person is a homeless person. The, the majority of people are not in the encampments. You said, but what about the myth or not uh, the idea that they are drug users? Even even I'm you know al- alcohol. I am not an expert on drug addictions. What I've heard is that a lot of people don't use drugs. Um, a lot of people who are homeless who use drugs don't do it until they're homeless. Right. But, um, like I said, the people that I've encountered um, who are genuinely homeless in San Francisco, um, I haven't observed a lot of drug use or signs of drug use Mm. either. Um, But but you also have to realize that most people who don't have shelter, they don't want people to know that they're unsheltered. It's embarrassing. And most people try to hide it as much as they can. Um, most people, I think, are probably just normal people who've had some bad luck and live in the most <laughs> expensive housing market in the United States yeah. and are just trying to get by the best they can. Yeah. So while we're at it, I'm just like, I like this. This is fun. I'm throwing all this the stigma stuff at you. Mm-hmm. So the other one you hear a lot is... Uh, there is sex trafficking going on in these encampments. There are women that are being held as sex slaves, uh, yeah. chained up in tents. The, f- 
the first time I had a conversation um, with a homeless person, I was 18 years old, and I was, uh, so this was a long time ago. I was at Santa Clara University, and this woman ran out of Taco Bell with a large cup of soda, and she was crying and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And um, she had gone in with her cup and stolen a cup full of soda, and she was just heartbroken that she was doing this. Mm. Um, because she <laughs> needed some sustenance. Um, so we went in and, and sat down, and I ordered for us, and she told me her story. And she told me that a lot of the time, um, the way she was able to get shelter would be that some a man would offer her shelter for the night mm. um, in his home. Mm. And she didn't specifically, she didn't go into the explicit details of that. Mm. But I definitely had the sense that she was telling me that she was having to trade her sexual agency for shelter. Right. And um, you definitely get into this area where was she being trafficked? No. She didn't have another person who was forcing her to do that. But in a sense, if your only way to get shelter is, is to make that kind of a trade, is it actually a free trade? Right. Um, and yeah. it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like she was happy with that situation. Yeah. So, so we touched on some interesting things. Um, just to recap, uh, this idea of, of this whole group of people of various coming from various angles that are totally functional that we don't know are homeless but are homeless and some of that is a technicality of, of language and some of that is a reality a practical reality um, literally people living in tents going and showering and going to work and coming back to an encampment and then we talked also about the the fact that the accusations, uh, some of the stigma characterizations are true. Well, you know, all of them are true in some senses for some people, but specifically like sex work or sex trade or um, substance use as a way to, as a practical way to get through the situation we just touched on. I wouldn't be surprised also if some. Um, mental illness was made worse by being on the street. Yes, I great think point. People yeah. experience a lot of uh, a lot of shame from being and a lot of feeling ignored when people walk by them oh without yeah. even looking oh or yeah. or say things to them. Um, and and I can imagine how that would make someone feel insecure and afraid and perhaps even sometimes paranoid. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of mental illness is made worse by the conditions of being unsheltered um, or even um, stimulated by that situation. Totally. That's a massively important point, and it, I think it gets to the heart of why I want to distinguish myself as someone who lives in a tiny house, who lives in an RV, as somebody who is not homeless, because I grow up in this world that, that has this this stigma around somebody who's classified as homeless and I don't want to be in that yeah, stigma. And it's interesting because, you know, 
millionaires and billionaires are quite happy to live in RVs at Burning Man or in a tent at Burning Man, and it, they don't feel like it creates stigma, or at least not any kind of stigma that they feel is negative towards them. Right. Um, or even, you know, camping vacations, right? Like, yeah. there's no shame in doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there's a ton of people that are housed that uh, have all kinds of addictions, whether they're legal. Or mental illness. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we are, America is full of, we're, we love popping pills, you know, antidepressants, uh, alcohol, legal or illegal, you know. I think what it comes down to is most people, are, most human beings are compassionate. And the problem with with people being unsheltered is that you, if you have a home, and you see some, you see if people are unsheltered in your neighborhood, you see them every day, every time you walk down the street, and most of the time you don't have the resources to completely solve the problems for even one of those people, let alone all of the people that you'll see huddled under blankets and sleeping bags on the streets of San Francisco in a single day, and there's so much compassion fatigue. And if people didn't have compassion, they probably wouldn't care that much when they walk by a homeless person. It wouldn't bother them so much. I think what makes it so hard is that most people are compassionate and do care. And every time they see that, they feel distress. And they may have a home, and so they, are, they enjoy the benefits of that, but they, they still, because of their empathy, they feel distress over the lack of shelter that other people experience. Totally, yeah. Compassion fatigue, yeah. It it's reminds me of, like, the, the numbers of, of dead uh, soldiers in, in a war, how it's, you just get desensitized to the violence. The, the people just become numbers rather than human beings that die. Uh, you know, in, in a terrorist event or, or, or in a war, I, I'm I'm really stuck with uh, the fact that there's still you still do see people uh, in encampments, you know, doing things that you can't that a housed person who's not educated on on who on all the complexities of of, of this topic. Not that that ha- that is has the stigma persona in their mind. When they see somebody that reinforces that stigma, when they see somebody shooting up, or they see somebody, right? But they don't see that in encampments, right? Encampments are usually off the beaten path. Like, like the the people that they see, they haven't verified that that, that person it doesn't have shelter. That that that's just an assumption that we make. I don't know how true it is or or isn't true. Right, you're able to distinguish the nuances. What I'm saying is that there's a lot of people that aren't you that that don't distinguish those nuances. That see somebody and assume they're homeless. Um, or I mean, there are highly visible encampments in Oakland. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're driving to the the Safeway in Emeryville yeah. and you got to pass this encampment. Well, I can tell you something, which is that um, in in the entrepreneurial community among successful entrepreneurs in, in the Bay Area, there's a lot of semi-public and even public discussion of using hard drugs. Mm. But n- I have never seen a single one of those people who've talked publicly about using LSD, um, uh, MDMA, um, mushrooms, people who've used these various drugs and have talked about it publicly in public areas, I've never seen a single one of them even be um, 
have any questions asked of them by the police. I remember reading an article once that was about a public conference where hundreds of people came. The entire conference was about using LSD. Yeah. And the, all the speakers admitted to using LSD and was were telling all the, the um, entrepreneurs in the audience about yeah. how this could spur their creativity. Yeah. Nobody was investigated. Yeah. So, so it's not as if the only place the drug use is happening in Silicon Valley is in homeless encampments. It's, it's the only place that, that you'll see it happening unless you're in the house with, in a house with other people who are doing it, who, who are telling you about it. And I'm sure it's probably different drugs and, and, and less safe drugs because they're, they're cheaper drugs on the street. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, well, you're touching on a couple of interesting notes. I mean, one is is the the racial legacy of of deciding which drugs are going to be enforced and which are not, and it's not based on uh, it's not based on any sort of practical consideration. You know, the fact that marijuana is is in the same class as meth or heroin is ridiculous, and the fact that crack was decided to be enforced in a certain way because a certain gr- group of people, people of color, were using that, whereas cocaine was enforced in a different way because uh, peop- white people, wealthier people were using that, w- even though cocaine is a pure, harder form of crack. That's, that's a racial legacy that you're pointing to, um, that you know, we, we pick who, who we enforce and how we characterize these, dr- these drugs. But then the other thing you're pointing at is, is that the, the psychedelics, which are also classified in this blanket term of drugs, um, are uh, so so I just listened to a podcast by Tim Ferriss uh, mm-hmm. uh, interviewing Michael Pollan who just came out mm-hmm. with a book about the power of psychedelics yeah. um, and just like to tie it all back to 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 homeless folks and, and also there's been um, some people who are well known in Silicon Valley who've been interviewed for the media publicly mm-hmm. about nootropics which is basically the abuse of prescription drugs right, 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 for right. to enhance performance. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, and, right, right. And they've never, as far as I know, they've never been questioned or arrested either. Right. No, no, that's a great point. And again, you're pointing at, like, this class class and racial bias that we have. It's, it's not a rational system that we have, for sure. But, no, the, well, what's interesting about psychedelics is they, p- they, they, p- they pose an opportunity for mental health if, yeah, according to Michael Pollan, and, mm-hmm. and, and re- not just according to Michael Pollan, but according to the research that's coming out, is that this is an opportunity to address mental health issues uh, for folks mm-hmm. and get past them, PTSD, depression, right. and Although addiction. they always specify in the right environment with trained facilitators. Yeah. I, they, they don't advocate doing it with outside of that environment. No, for sure. It's not like you should go and just start doing it. No, but but this is a path to basically change the 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 network uh mm-hmm. the physical um channels yeah. in your brain. Um and basically it comes down to reducing the the part of your brain that um is associated with your ego and your sense of self. Mm-hmm. And going moving from a me to a we state and just just in that moment for you know that momentary uh, episode, you're able to start to re-examine your situation in a different way, and then that that re-examining um, sets new pathways in your brain that then you can take with you for the rest of your life. So it's yeah, and if there can be a cure for mental health issues, like that's huge, massive, yeah, that's huge. yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, you know, so that's a potential great solution for some of these um, highly visible um, people that we think of as the, the homeless people. 
And I know I yeah you know you're, you're, you're telling conflict. me that we should administer drugs to homeless people. Well, that's the thing. I mean, <laughs> we're going back to we're going back to the definition of words. You know, mm -hmm. like drugs. Who you know who decided to put all of these these different things that do different way do different things in in this umbrella term of drugs. You know, right. Um, I think that's a pretty it, arbitrary it just, decision. It just sounds funny because you started off by talking about how there's a stigma that people who are unsheltered use drugs. Then you told me um, that maybe some of them who are unsheltered because of mental health reasons should have drugs. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. Totally. It's uh, it's it's a lack of our our nuance of of language to mm. to say both of these things are drugs. Have you heard of Rat Park? No. What's that? So they um, addiction researchers put rats in cages yeah. and they gave them um, a little nozzle that they could use to get liquid, I think it was cocaine, yeah. Yeah. Uh, out of, as much as they wanted to. Right. And so what they found out was that these rats would sit there and they would eat or drink the cocaine water yeah. and they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't sleep, they wouldn't do anything. They would just eat the cocaine water until they just died right. because they weren't eating and sleeping. Right. And so um, at first researchers said, gosh, this is evidence that this is really, really addictive stuff. Yeah. But then the researchers did a variation on the experiment and they, they called it Rat Park. And I think it's really fascinating when it comes down to questions of homelessness and addiction. Because what they did was they got this large area and they made a rat paradise. They put lots of rats to play with. They put all sorts of little exercise machines for the rats to play around on and toys and plants and whatever things the rats might, you know, that they knew for some reason rats liked doing. <laughs> so uh, then they, they put the cocaine nozzles in again so the rats could have the cocaine. And I think they, they forced the rat to taste the cocaine or something at the beginning so the rat knows where it is, start off the addiction process. And so the rats had their first dose of cocaine, and then they went off to play with the other rats and have fun, and they never came back to the cocaine. Hmm. And then what they found out was the rats who were in the boring cages, that they were depressed. Right, Caged. And so yeah. they were seeking a relief from their mental anguish. But the rats who had a good environment, they didn't need the drug, they were already happy. And in fact, they found the drug undesirable. So, very, very interesting study. Yeah, so yeah. addiction researchers are now saying the reason people use drugs is oftentimes because their life has horrible conditions and they're trying to relieve the mental pain of their quality of life. Totally. So, I think, you know, if we are concerned about people having addictions to these drugs, let's make them some kind of human version of Rat Park. And I'm going to bet you that they, their addiction is going to go away just like those rats. They're not going to be interested anymore because they have other things that they'd rather do with their time. Totally. So, so yeah. So, one question is, how do we build human parks? <laughs> and, and just to back up a second, I, Michael Pollan referenced a similar study yeah. where he said that the rats, when they were given a chance to do LSD, they tried it once and then never again. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, which is interesting. <laughs> but it also go goes back to that idea that, like you said, it's it's a deeper problem that usually is, is at the root of, a, of an addiction, um, and it usually has to do with trauma and, um, and some sort of 
direct like a uh, trap, mental trap that somebody has fallen into that they can't get out of. And what psychedelics they're finding are doing is loosening the brain so that they're able to find another option and mm -hmm. get out of that mental trap or address and confront their trauma, their past traumas and move forward. When they have the proper guidance. Right, right. Because uh, you also have stories of people who don't have someone to help stabilize the experience they're happening, having on on uh, drugs and yeah. end up having what's called a bad trip. Right, right, right. And right, yeah. some of those apparently can mentally affect someone negatively for a very long time totally. afterwards. Totally, totally, so yeah. I, yeah. That, I mean, I think were we at we were at the same shareable event where a woman said, um, which is really poignant, uh, we have to get past this idea that there is a silver bullet, that there's some magic thing that we can just find and it'll just solve every problem. Mm. It's not... It's not, there's no magic bullet. There's no one size fits all solution. There's just yeah. a bunch of things that we can do, you know, uh, with, with intent um, yeah. and, and thought. Uh, and, and they, they and, but there is, there is a way to get out of the, the craziness that we're in. Yeah. But yeah. But uh, so the idea of a human park specifically designed for people that are coming from living on the streets, either, and, and specifically designed for people that are, in this world that I think everybody thinks is all homeless people, that are people that are, have had trauma, um, are dealing with an addiction like meth or heroin, which we do have those people on our streets um, or crack. How would that human, what does that human park look like to you? And I realize you're, you're not an expert, but we're yeah, talking. I mean, I've, I've never been in that situation myself. Um, yeah. but, but one of the things that I imagine would help people feel a lot psychologically better when they're unsheltered, especially sleeping on the streets, is safety. Because, um, you know, encountering people in San Francisco, um, they s the thing that I've noticed is that they, they're always a little bit afraid. There, there was someone, um, I don't remember if it was in San Francisco or a neighboring community, but in the last couple of years, who was actually killed when the police dumped his tent into a trash trunk truck without realizing he was inside it, he climbed out before he was crushed to death. Damn. As far as I know, that's only happened once. But when you're always afraid of being, you know, woken up and maybe treated roughly by the police, um, it seems to generate a lot of fear and anxiety. I think if people could have a sense of safety, it would probably help a lot, especially when, when there's no pla there's not really places where you can go to get away from that. It becomes a twenty-four hour situation of always feeling insecure, um, and it's Great not, point, a, it's yeah. not a good way for people to live. Um, I, I've mentioned to you that I've volunteered a little bit for the Gubia Project, which um, is where churches in San Francisco open up their sanctuaries for the unsheltered to sleep from 6 a.m. until noon. They, um, the location I volunteered with also provided food and coffee um, to varying degrees uh, depending on what had been donated that day. Um, well, they, they always have coffee, but they always have bread that's been donated. Sometimes there's sandwiches that people can take when they leave at lunchtime. Um, but everyone just asleep the whole time, and I think it provides for them that sense of safety 
that here I can sleep and no one's going to wake me up and be rough with me. Um, I'm safe for six hours. That's awesome. I didn't realize that that was the, the focus of the program. So it's, it's making use of space that they're not using from 6 to 12 mm -hmm. um, and giving a really important resource to somebody, which is just a safe space to sleep, which you are taking very safe well said. Safe and warm place yeah. to sleep. So what's the setup for that? Is it like yoga mats? Is it cots? How many people are usually using that? So the location that I haven't been to yet, th they actually sleep on the pews. Okay. The location I've been at, they have, um, I think they call them, um, I'm not sure what the, I don't remember exactly what it says printed on the mats, but something like um, rescue mats. Or, uh, it's not the exact phrase, I forget the exact phrase, but my feeling is that they're, they're used for refugees, um, or, or, you know, let's say there's a hurricane that blows through and everybody's sleeping in the stadium, I think these are the, the same mats they bring out in those kinds of situations. Huh. Um, yeah, I had one, this one, um, grandmotherly woman come up to me and say, um, oh, I'm, I'm so glad that you do this because, um, when I don't sleep, it's harder for me to get everything else done. And sometimes I sleep on the bus, but then I have to wake. I have to wake up when it's time to get off the bus, and here I can sleep for six hours undisturbed, and then um, I'm able to be more clear-headed and productive the rest of the day. And she looked like she was probably, you know, 65, 70 years old, and remarkably <laughs> clean and well dressed, and um, it's it's just heartbreaking because I think most people don't realize that you know, your grandmother could be one of the people who's, who's suffering from this housing crisis or having right now. Yeah. Um, you know, those, are, those are the people that, that you don't necessarily think about when you think about the homeless, but they're just, just quite normal people who have had bad luck. Yeah. How, how, many, how many people usually are, are using the... So it's actually Sanctuary. interesting. They have a lot more people at the end of the month than at the beginning of the month. Huh. Because people who get checks at the beginning of the month, apparently they'll stay in hotels or whatever for a while until the money runs out. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, very cool. And what do you do as a volunteer there? What's your role there? Um, I, I uh, you know, we have some supplies that people can request, so socks, razors, feminine pads, um, that kind of thing. So getting those, um, keeping track of, of the usage of those, uh, you know, bringing out bread from the kitchen, um, washing the mats. We try to keep them sanitized every day so that people have clean mats to come back to the next day. Hmm. So, wow, that's great work. You're that's like a really huge service. Oh gosh, well, I, mean, I mean, that's not me, right? That's like the amazing people over at the Gubio Project who are, are running that yeah. five days a week. <laughs> it's and amazing. And so, the Gubio Project cons uh, it works with multiple church sanctuaries and yes, coordinates yeah. this whole operation. Is that yeah, right? But I, I imagine it's something that, that churches could choose to, to do on their own if. 
if they wanted to open up their sanctuary to people in need. I've, I've heard of some churches that offer their parking lots um, for people to park their vehicles in hmm. or to camp in. And I think that's also a really great way that people are opening up spaces that, that they have to those in need and making sure that, that they have safety and security yeah. in their sleeping situations. Totally. Um, and the Gubio project will... Does it provide the cots for or the mats to the churches and the the supplies? No, I, I I mean I don't I think that if if they were to become a part of the project they would probably set that up. Yeah. Um, but I have never I haven't been a part of any churches coming into the project. I, yeah. I'm I'm just a new person that's just excited about what they're doing. Yeah. Cool. Um. So. I have like maybe one more question, which you probably won't like, but um, before we get to that one, uh, what, well, how do you, what's your advice for us Taos people, maybe I'm not included in that as an RV dweller, uh, for doing our part uh, in this moment, in this housing crisis, giving your, you know, your perspective, what's, what's your kind of parting thoughts, if you could speak to politicians or moneyed people that uh, that vote and, and their voices are heard in, in political spaces? I think if I were to speak to politicians, I would remind them that the police exist to protect everyone, not just people with shelter. And if I could see a way that the police could be a force for good um, in the crisis we're having right now, it would be protect the safety of people who are sleeping on the streets instead of um, roughing them up. I know there's a lot of pressure though from on on uh, on the cities, especially you know in San Francisco. Um, there's a lot of pressure on the city t for for wealthy residents not to have to see the suffering of others. Um, and I know dealing with that political pressure is difficult. Um, but I guess my advice for individuals is to realize that you're, you're interacting with human beings and individuals and to be open to ways that you can share resources without cost to yourself. Um, Space is an amazing resource because it can't get used up. So if you open up, you know, if you let someone use space to sleep, it's still going to be there afterwards. Unlike that dollar that you give them, it's you know you don't have it anymore, and then they spend it and they don't have it anymore. You let them sleep on <laughs> on a tent in your yard, and your yard's still going to be there tomorrow. Um, so it's it's a great way to use permanent resources in a way they don't get used up and make someone's life a little easier. Um, I'm not going to claim to have an easy solution for solving the homeless or the housing affordability crisis in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, there doesn't seem to be easy answers. How do you get uh past or uh, mitigate the compassion fatigue that you mentioned what's your strategy for that or do you <laughs> do you not have one yeah I, I think that's a hard question 
I don't really have an answer. Fair. Okay, and then my final question that you won't like is what is your um, your favorite, the favorite part of your home? I'm going to try to ask this to every, every uh, interview guest that I have. Mm. I think I like outdoor spaces the best. Wherever I'm living, I, I like to be able to go outside and get some sun and be in nature. So that that can whatever home I have at the time, I think it, it usually ends up to being the outdoor spaces that I value the most. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Rebecca Gorman, real estate agent. Uh, and you and where can people find you um, if they wanted to start a co-op with you or buy a house with you? You have a website or Facebook or Twitter or anything like that? Oh, I do have. I'm just starting a Facebook page. <laughs> it's called Rebecca Gorman Realtor. It's a, a very creative name. I came up with it on my own. <laughs> very cool. Okay. Rebecca Gorman Realtor. Rebecca Gorman Realtor. On Facebook. Okay. Yeah. And <laughs> do you have a website or email or anything else you want to give for people to my contact my you? My email is Rebecca.Gorman at gmail. Uh, yeah, and I am working on getting a new website up, so that's in progress. Stay tuned. All right. Find her on Facebook or send her an email. Okay. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The music is by Paul Simon and Lady Smith Black Mambasso from the Graceland album, one of the greatest albums of all time. This podcast is inspired by the work of Tiny Logic. For more information, visit tinylogic.ninja.